This month we're looking at three passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Two weeks ago tonight we looked at the opening story or parable of Matthew 13, the parable of the soils with its message of be careful how you listen to God's word when it's spoken to you. Last week we went on to chapter 14 to the wonderful story, the miracle of walking on water done both by Jesus and by Peter. We're skipping over chapter 15. If you read that, you'll find a great story of a woman of great faith, not a Jewish lady, but a lady from way up above the country of Israel. Chapter 16 turns a corner when Jesus conducts an opinion poll. And he says, who do people say I am? And you get lots of different answers. Eventually, the right answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the statement that on that confession, Jesus would build his church. Tonight, a week later, we come to Matthew 17, and we're going to read the first verses of this chapter. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them, about John the Baptist. Amen. You and I have come here this evening to worship, and we've made a good choice to do that. We're following the example, actually, of some Greeks a long time ago. They're described in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would see Jesus. 
That was a good thing. And I trust that that's why you're here tonight. We would see Jesus. The writer of Hebrews saw it that way as well, and he said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So my goal this evening is very simple. It's very difficult. It's very complex. It's all of the above because my goal is that you would see Jesus. You would deepen your commitment to him. That you would be motivated to see even more of Jesus in the future. And I want to get at that with three words that come out of this passage, three ideas. Revelation, transfiguration, and exhortation. Revelation. I want to say what is the foundation of what we're all about. God reveals. We don't get things on our own. The only way we know anything is by revelation. All facts are revealed facts. And my mind immediately went to a conversation with some grandchildren this afternoon. The question was, what's the difference between the Syriac Orthodox Church on Villa Avenue near their house and the Syrian Orthodox Church that just bought 905 Greek Avenue. Now, I'd be surprised if anybody other than my wife knows the answer to that question. That's what we researched. We're a strange family. That's how we spent our afternoon researching that. What we learned was revealed to us from God. Now, we may have used Google to get there, but it was still a revelation from God because all facts are revealed facts Anything you learn comes from God. And what we know is what God has chosen to let us know. And revelation from God is always true because he speaks truth. It's, and these are all foundational things of the Christian faith, okay? It's progressive. That is, we get a little bit at the beginning of the Bible, and the further you go in the Bible, the more you get it starts with very broad ideas in Genesis, and then the focus, as you keep reading, gets sharper and sharper until Jesus is placed in the spotlight by the time we get to the Gospel of Matthew. So let me explain what I'm talking about here, about it's progressive. You start at the front of the Bible. You get to Genesis 3, verse 15, and you get something about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. That must not have been very much help at the time. But we are able to look back and say, that's the first suggestion that there's a Messiah coming, that the brokenness of sin is not the end of the story. You keep reading, and you get to chapter 22, and you're in the story of Abraham. And God has been making promises to Abraham. And at chapter 22, he says, Abraham, through your seed, your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so if you were here this morning, you were hearing about the blessing to the nations of the world, fulfilling Genesis 22. Keep reading and you come to Deuteronomy, the fifth book. 
And as you work your way up to chapter 18, you'll find a prophecy that there is another prophet coming and that other prophet is like Moses and the instruction is, listen to him. And we know that that other prophet is the Messiah. So we've gone from Genesis 3, crushing the head of the serpent, to the descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, to the prophet like Moses, and you can keep on going. You get to the life of David, and of course that takes a lot of the Bible, but in Psalm 132, at the end of that psalm, it speaks about the anointed one who will be on the throne. And you and I are able to say, we're talking about the same person all the way through here. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 22 to Deuteronomy 18 to Psalm 132, we're getting more and more clues, more and more things revealed to us about the Messiah. And then you read Isaiah. And over and over, Isaiah has something to say about the servant. And I don't know if Isaiah even understood that there was a similarity or an identity between the servant and the Messiah, but we know there is. And there's enough revealed in that Old Testament as you get more and more to cause us to want to keep on learning and to wait for the New Testament to come. And when the New Testament comes, Jesus is revealed. How does it begin? Well, the unusual events about his birth. That star, those magi, those shepherds, those angels, all those things that made this birth special. That unusual ability he showed at age 12 when he was in the temple asking questions and teaching. That voice that came at age 30 when John the Baptist baptized him and a voice comes out of the clouds and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On that same occasion, when John the Baptist saw him coming down toward the river and said, here is the Lamb of God, we get more and more clues, more and more revealed to us about this Messiah. And gradually, well, by the time you get to Matthew 13, you get him telling parables, and we learn more about him. Matthew 14, the walking on the water, and we learn more about him. Matthew 15, Matthew 16, confessing that he is the Christ. And gradually this person, Jesus, can be seen by those who have eyes to see. The first point, the first major theme of Matthew 17 is a theme of revelation that began all the way back there in Genesis 3 and continued up to Matthew 16 where, G, where Peter was able to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. But at the end of Matthew 16, and I didn't preach on that, at the end of Matthew 16 you get some really hard words. Now that Peter has been able to say who Jesus is, Jesus says, yes, but I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. Peter couldn't handle that. 
despite all that the disciples had learned from Jesus by this point, they weren't ready to think about his death. Now, why am I taking all this time on Revelation? Because I think we won't get the heart of the passage unless we see it against the background of Revelation that began all the way back there in Genesis 3 and continues to this marvelous experience in the middle of the night that we call the transfiguration. In all of that, God is continuing to enlighten his people to show them more and more truth. Okay, second word. Second word is transfiguration. Now, the story is told in three different Gospels. And, of course, each Gospel writer gives us a little bit of information, a little different perspective. I'm going to try to sort of put the three Gospels together for you. It's been a week since Peter said, you are the Christ. They've had one more week to think about who this person is and what is it that we need to understand about him. And now a week later, Jesus says, okay, I'm out of the 12, I'm taking three, we're going up this mountain and we're going to pray. I'm, it doesn't give us all the details, but I'm guessing they prayed with him. They probably prayed until they couldn't think of anything else to pray, and then by now it's really late and they fall asleep. And while they had been praying, or while, I shouldn't say it that way, while he went on further up and prayed more and they slept, he experienced what we call transfiguration. If we had been there, what would we have seen? Well, we have, would have seen that his, his clothes became intensely white. And that he, and maybe the clothes together, gave off a light. And if, if that would have been frightening enough to us, now we see two extra people. And we, though we've never seen them before, we begin, we, meaning these three, begin to recognize them as Moses and Elijah. <laughs> Disciples wake up, and now instead of one, there's three. Uh, pretty startling experience. You've had that when the, clock, when the phone rings at 3 o'clock in the morning and you stumble to, what, you know, what's going on here, Jesus? And then Moses and Elijah start to leave. And Peter, of course, as always, speaks up. And he says, stick around. Don't, don't, don't leave Moses. Don't leave Elijah. Come, come on. I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a place for all three of you so you can stay here. Let's have this last a while. And then a cloud comes down over them. And when the cloud comes down, they hear a voice. And the text says that in their fear and their reverence, Peter and James and John got down on the ground, as I think we would have as well. And Jesus touched them. And the experience is over. Well, you can't just walk away from that, can you? We've got to, we've got to spend a little more time with that. Let's look at some of the details. It starts at verse 2. When it says his face, he was transfigured before them, 
His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Boy, that sounds like glory to me. The glory of God was somehow couldn't be contained anymore and is breaking out of Jesus on this occasion. Kind of thing that happened back in the Old Testament when Daniel, Daniel prophesied and he, he, he talked in his vision. He said, I, I see a face like lightning. I see eyes like flaming torches. This sounds pretty much the same. Or at the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, John is in this vision situation, and he starts to tell us what he saw. And he says, I saw eyes like a flame of fire. I saw head and hair white as wool and snow. All three seem to be the same to me, Daniel, Matthew, and Revelation. And in all three settings, those who are writing it down are trying to describe what it was that the disciples saw. How do you put it into words? A great light, whiteness, lightning, something they've never seen before. Peter, James, John. Both Peter and John wrote about this later. John, in his gospel, in the opening chapter of the gospel of John, he's got 14 verses that are introductory. And when he gets to the 14th verse, he says, this is a really a paraphrase, he said, he became man and we saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We have seen his glory and surely John was thinking back to this night. The night before Jesus died, he prayed, and the prayers put in by John in chapter 17. And in that prayer, Jesus says to the Father, in effect, I've, you know, I've finished my work here. Glorify me in your presence. It was as if for those 33 years, his his glory was sort of hidden and contained, and it broke out on the night of transfiguration. And Jesus says, now that I finish my work here on earth, it can break out permanently again in John 17. Now, these three disciples then had the marvelous and mysterious experience of seeing God visibly revealed in Jesus. And the impression they had was one of purity and holiness. A pure, holy God is visibly seen in this man, Jesus. But wait a minute. Jesus wasn't the only one there, was he? There are these other two, Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Two men coming back from the other side? That's really strange. And why these two? What do you think about that? Moses. Moses, more than any other person in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Messiah, the one who led the people of God 
out of slavery to the promised land. If ever there was a Messiah in the Old Testament, it was Moses. But it's also Moses the lawgiver. When we think of the Ten Commandments, Moses was the agent. Moses, the one who stood up there on Mount Sinai and spoke for God. Oh, Moses, a man who saw God on the mountain and who came down from the mountain with his face glowing as well as his face reflected the glory of God. Moses, I think I could argue that he's the greatest of all the Old Testament saints, and it's Moses who comes back on this special night. But Elijah? Well, Elijah the prophet, right? Elijah the one who took that law and applied it to the people. Elijah, the great representative of all the prophets through history. Elijah, a man who did not die. Very unusual. Who was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. (laughs) Now Moses and Elijah had been waiting for a long time to see Jesus, the Messiah. (laughs) There was one occasion where Jesus reminded the disciples that many prophets and kings had longed to see and hear what the disciples were experiencing. That's Moses and Elijah. So here is further revelation from God that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. For all that was required in the law of the Old Testament and all that was promised by the prophets in the Old Testament are now finding fulfillment in this man who is standing here on the mountain in glorious splendor. But then Matthew tucks in There was a cloud there as well. A cloud. A symbol of the presence of God on more than one occasion. At Mount Sinai, Ten Commandment experiences, Moses experienced, there was a heavy cloud, remember, and fire. God came down on the mountain in the cloud. When they went through the wilderness for those 40 years, it was the cloud that led them from place to place. God in the cloud. In Acts 1, sometime after this experience, when Jesus leaves, he disappears into the cloud, into the presence of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 says when Jesus comes back, we're going to meet him in the cloud. We'll be together in the presence of God. And of course, the nature of a cloud makes it a good symbol for our God who is not material, but is spiritual. And this particular cloud was bright, further suggesting the presence of a holy God. One more thing, the voice. The voice. Just a week before, when Jesus took the opinion poll, he found that people had a wide variety of opinions about who he was. And he found out what Peter thought of him. 
But what does God think of Jesus at this point? What's God think? Well, there's a threefold answer right here. The transfiguration tells us what God thinks of Jesus. The visit of Moses and Elijah tell us what God thinks of Jesus. And then the voice tells us as well. If you think back through the whole Bible, very seldom has the voice of God been heard in an audible way. Very seldom. It happened at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. It happened at the baptism of Jesus. You're my own dear son. I'm well pleased with you. And now it happens at the transfiguration. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We put that together, and there's no doubt about what God thinks of Jesus after two years of public ministry. Jesus had taught. He'd served for two years. God's opinion of Jesus is still just as high as it had been two years earlier at the beginning of his ministry. Peter, a week ago, had said, you are the Christ. And now a week later, God says, you're right, Peter. He is the Messiah, the Christ. And so step by step from Genesis 3 all the way down to Matthew 17, God is revealing himself to people. The writer of Hebrews caught the message. Here's how he started his book. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sounds like an echo of this transfiguration experience. Three words, revelation, transfiguration, and exhortation, because there's an exhortation in this passage as well. Peter, James, John, they'd been listening to Jesus for two years by this point. A lot of what he'd said just went right on through. They'd not really heard with an understanding mind and heart often. But now, now, with their ears, they hear God audibly saying, listen to Jesus. Now, that would make an impression. Listen to Jesus. You and I would have listened if we'd been there. What did Hebrews 1 say? God is speaking or has spoken to us through his Son. That God is speaking tonight to you through Jesus the Christ. You say, well, how's that happening? How's that work? Well, I mentioned earlier that when John wrote his gospel decades later, he went back to this experience. When Peter wrote his letters decades later, he also went back to this experience. In fact, he did it uh, rather more directly. In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, and you get to verse 16, here's Peter's take on the transfiguration. We did not follow cleverly invented stories 
when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on a sacred mountain. And then he says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, it seems to me that if I had been Peter, and I had had that experience on that mountain, and it's time now for me to write a letter about it, I would have said, boy, trust me. Here's what I have to say. Trust me because I've had a great experience. It's interesting that Peter doesn't go that way. Peter says, I had a great experience. But he doesn't say, trust my experience. He says, the experience made the prophet more certain. He goes from the experience right back to the book. He says, in light of the experience, listen to the book. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's application is all about going to the book, not trying to replicate his experience. So when I close the sermon, as I'm doing now, what application do I need to make? Well, God says, listen to my son. God says, the Bible is my message to you. It reveals my son. Use this book to listen to my son. What's the goal then? To know the book? No, the goal is not to know the book. The goal is to know the son. We don't worship the book, but neither will we listen to Jesus apart from the book. So tonight I say to you, you see who Jesus is? Then take the book and listen to him. Commit yourself to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory.